morning, everybody. My name is Jordan, and it's, it's so good to be with you. I, I missed you guys. I know it was only a couple weeks, but it felt like forever. So it's just good to be back. Um, I'm excited to hop back into the book of 1 Corinthians. And I am about to be starting out this sermon by talking about a movie that Will Smith is in. Okay, now some of you are immediately thinking, it's Hitch. I've been waiting for them to talk about Hitch here. There's like a little cult-like Hitch following within our church. I'm not going to name names, but you know who you are. Um, Maybe for some of you, more your style is men in black or maybe your generation. Um, But most of you are thinking, does he know what happened? And the answer is, I haven't been living under a rock. I, that was unintentional. That was a pun. I do know that, yeah, I, totally unintentional. I do know that Will slapped Chris Rock. And I am not going to give any commentary on that. I know we're not really supposed to talk about Will Smith publicly, all right? Like, I'm not going there. We all good? All right. So, the movie is not Hitch. It is The Pursuit of Happiness. You remember that one? Yeah, there was like a little, mm, yeah, yeah. That's, that's how we all felt watching that movie, or at least at the end of that movie. So Will Smith plays Chris Gardner, uh, who is a, a man, I think loosely based on a true story, but based on a true story. He's a guy who invests a bunch of money in bone density scanners and tries to sell them to doctors, and it goes poorly. And in the process, he loses essentially everything. And so the pursuit of happiness is the story of Chris Gardner and his son uh, trying to kind of make it back. And they actually end up on the streets for a while and try to figure out how to uh, get out of that situation. And eventually he ends up taking this risky internship as a stockbroker. And against all odds, he actually gets the job and they're able to create this life that they have been trying to live. And we all relate to that movie, like even the, the ah in the room, is because we all felt as we're watching that movie some connection with it. And it's likely not because that many of us know what it's like to get off the streets by selling bone density scanners. So why is it that we relate so much to that movie? Well, it's in the name. It's because of the pursuit of happiness. No matter who you are, what your background is, All of you in this room are on that pursuit. And no matter how happy you are, you want to be even more happy. It's it's a human thing. You actually can't not engage in that pursuit. And we tend to assume that the way to pursue happiness is the way that Chris Gardner did it. By looking forward and having a vision for what you want your life to be, identifying the circumstances that are keeping you from that life and trying to overcome those hurdles to create the life that you have always wanted. We pursue happiness through trying to manipulate and change our circumstances. We believe there's a cause and effect relationship between our happiness or living the good life and the circumstances that we have. And part of the reason why we believe that is because we've been taught that. It's part of who we are. It's within the American dream. That the good life is in this process of upward mobility and gaining the life that you have always wanted. But what if you and essentially everyone you know was wrong about how to find the good life? About how to pursue ultimate 
happiness? What if something so essential to what it means to be human, what if we all were missing how to pursue it? All right, 1 Corinthians 7, if you'd like to flip there with me. In verse 17, Paul is going to give us a principle. It's what he calls a rule. And he says it's a rule for all of the churches. So 1 Corinthians is called 1 Corinthians because it was a letter that this guy, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the Corinthian church. And it has a lot of things specifically for the Corinthian church. But Paul is saying what he's about to talk about is a universal principle. He gives it to all Christians, and it applies to us. And what 1 Corinthians 7 is known for is for this teaching on singleness. But something that I've never noticed before until I was studying this text the last couple weeks is that all of that teaching on singleness and some of the other um, social aspects that he gives wisdom into is all application of one overarching principle. And so we're going to talk first about that principle that all of that application hangs on. We're going to focus there, and then later we'll get to that his application primarily about singleness. But 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all of the churches. His rule, his, his principle that he gives to any Christian willing to listen to him is to, is to let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and therefore which God has called him to. So my summary of this is that Christians are to embrace their current circumstances and place in life, whatever that is, as an assignment from God. And that that ultimately is the good life. Now I'm getting here the, the place in life thing that I said. I'm getting that from verse 20, if you want to look at that, which is a clarification of that principle in verse 17. Verse 20 says this, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So there when he's saying was called, he's talking about conversion. So the Corinthians were experiencing this new freedom in Christ, and they were asking Paul all of these questions with what that freedom means. Does that mean I can get divorced? Does it mean I shouldn't get married? Does it mean I need to become culturally Jewish? What does it mean for how I live my life? They were asking him all of these questions. And he's responding to their questions about freedom in Christ by saying, what was the state in life that you were in? What were your circumstances when you became a Christian? Here's my advice to you, is I want you to stay there. I want you to live with God inside of those realities, even if they're not the realities that you initially would have chosen or that you believe will ultimately lead to your flourishing. So I want you guys right now to think of some of the circumstantial realities in your life, the place in life that you are. And if you would, I want you to think specifically about something or maybe a couple things in your life that you tend to believe are preventing you from the life that you want, preventing you from happiness. Okay, so I want you to actually do that right now. Think about something in your life that you, a circumstance that you believe is preventing you from the life that you want. Maybe for you it's lack of finances. 
Maybe it's a job that you don't love. Maybe it's a relationship that is difficult. Maybe it's the lack of a relationship. Maybe it's busyness because of things happening in your life that make you feel overwhelmed. Now, I want to tell you why those circumstances exist in your life. Are you ready? Because God gave them to you as a gift. Because God gave them to you as a gift and as a calling. So we're going to unpack that for a minute. Now, if there was no God, here's what you would believe about circumstances in life and your place in the world, is that they are random and arbitrary. And so you're at war with your circumstances. And if you can play the, the kind of game of chess in your life and, and move your pieces around appropriately, and if you get lucky enough, then maybe in the future you can be happy or live the fulfilled life, but it's completely arbitrary and you're working against the arbitrary nature of the world. But Christians believe that circumstances are distributions of divine providence. That's what we believe. That word providence, what that means, uh, th this may be a simple explanation, but what it means is that things ultimately go according to God's plan. That he provides for, hence providence, provides for his world according to his plan in everything. So as a Christian, we have promises about this in scripture. If you are in Christ, here's what you can be confident about, is that everything in the hands of God is ultimately working for your good. Even if you don't understand that. You're not necessarily guaranteed the answer of how it's working for your good, but you can stand on that promise from God. The universe is moving towards the ultimate good of the Christian in the fatherly hands of God. That's the way the universe works. Now, does that mean that there is no evil in the world? No. That's not a biblical conclusion. Does that mean that God generates evil? Like, for example, when I had some of you think about circumstances that were preventing you from the life you want, some of you likely thought about a sin in your life. Does God approve of or support that sin? Did he generate that sin in you? Of course not. But I'm just saying that evil is a fish swimming in the ocean of God's providence. That his loving care for his world and his ultimate rulership of his world is weightier, it's more significant than the plans of evil in this world, including your sin. Your sin is swimming in the ocean of God's goodness towards you. And all evil is manipulated and used by God for the good of Christians. And in his providence, this is where we are coming back to this idea in 1 Corinthians 7, and the assignment from God and his calling, in God's providence, God is calling you into the life that you currently have. Now again, I'm not saying there that you can't ever change your circumstances or anything like that. Paul clarifies that in this text where he talks to bond servants who are essentially household employees and says, if you have the opportunity to avail yourself of freedom, do it. So I'm, I'm not saying there's never a time that, that you change your circumstances, but your circumstantial reality is not the most foundational thing. It's not the most important thing about your life. What you do with those circumstances and how you honor God in them is. That one paragraph in verses 17 through 24 uses the word calling eight times. 
This is one of the primary places that we, we get a look in Scripture on the calling of God. So again, a lot of it is about how do you handle marriage and singleness, which we're going to get to. But I think actually we've missed a little bit that this is largely through this principle. It's about calling, what it means to be called by God into your life. And so your house, if you don't like it, you wish you had a different one, you wish you lived in a different neighborhood in a quote-unquote better house, you live in that house because God decided to put you there as a light to your neighbors. You're called there. Your job, maybe that you hate or that feels purposeless or meaningless, you're put there by God to learn to persevere and to have the character of a Christian and as an opportunity to be a light to hopeless people that you interact with in your sphere of influence. He called you there. Your seemingly dull marriage that you kind of want to get out of. Or maybe you don't want to get out of, but, but maybe that you, in honest moments, regret and feel like maybe was a mistake. You are in that marriage as an opportunity to display the selfless love of Jesus Christ. Marriage is a pointer to the reality of the character of God. And so you, as you die to yourself and serve your spouse and reinvigorate your marriage through your service by the power of God, have purpose in that marriage that at times feels purposeless. The world, including the things that you think are barriers to a full life, are not random happenstance. They are things governed by God who is good. And you were sent there, wherever the there is for you, whatever's happening in your life, you were given that life as an opportunity to display God's goodness. It's your calling. That's what he means in verse 17 when he says calling. So my wife and I recently went to um, what's called a church planter assessment. So if, if, if you didn't know, I'm, I'm planning a church uh, with some people in West Lafayette, Indiana, to try and reach out to that city and to Purdue University. And we went to a church planning assessment. And so it was like this two-day assessment, but they were really big on calling. And like, like to the level that they had us try to articulate the way that we were called by God in these very specific ways. So it was like we needed to have a scripture verse that we felt like we received from the Lord to this calling to church plant. Like, I needed to explain my calling. Jessamy needed to explain her calling and how those came together. We had to draw it out on this big, like, white sheet thing and be able to communicate it to a group of people in five minutes. Then they, like, asked us all these questions about it. So they were huge on calling. And I honestly didn't understand it. But as we talked more about it, I started to understand why. Is because they were saying church planning is difficult. And there will be times that you'll be tempted to give up. And here's what you need to know in that moment is that you didn't just on your own choose to do this. It's not some arbitrary thing in your life to just move on to the next thing, but God called you there. And because of that calling, it can prevent giving up. Calling infuses difficulty and discouragement with purpose. And that's true for all of you. 
So calling is not just to like vocational ministry. That's not just a thing for pastors. That's something that God does for all of us. And in your life, when you're discouraged, when you feel like it's purposeless, when you feel like it's meaningless, when circumstances come your way that you never expected and that you think are derailing your life, here's what you can be confident in is that God assigned that to you and there's purpose. Keep going. Honor him in it. And specifically, the way that that calling plays out in life, he clarifies in verse 19, if you look at that with me. Verse 19, and little warning, I'm about to read the word circumcision a lot, okay? Uh, This is just like a cultural thing. Jewish people were circumcised, non-Jewish people weren't, so the Corinthians are asking, do they need to do like uh, Jewish religious practices? Okay, that's what's happening. All right, verse 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. So he's saying your, your religious background and kind of how you function within these religious realities of life are not ultimately that big of a deal, but here's what counts, that you keep the commands of God. That whatever circumstance that you're in, that you obey him as a demonstration of his character. That's what calling looks like. I remember an illustration that I heard years ago uh, from an elder at uh, the church that I was at at the time by the name of Alex Tuckness. And he gave this illustration about God's will or God's calling on our life. Because Christians can tend to freak out a little bit about this idea of God's will. Like, we have a decision to make. Who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? What job am I going to live? Or not job I'm going to live. What job am I going to do? And we kind of panic. Like, God has this very specific road, road map for our life that he's expecting us to follow and not screw up. But he's also kind of hiding it from us. And so we get really indecisive about, like, the will and calling of God. But this was the illustration. He said, imagine that there was a father. And the father was talking to his son and said, hey, son, I want you to to go back in the backyard and play and just enjoy the afternoon. And he said, you can can play, you can do do whatever you want. I just want you to stay in the backyard. Just make sure you stay inside the fence in the backyard. And the kid ran out all excited to play. And then imagine that the kid comes back in five minutes later just bawling, just freaking out and going, Dad, I don't know what you want me to do. Do you want me to play in the sandbox or do you want me to play on the swing? And the dad's like, is it in the backyard? Yeah? Okay, do what you want. Like, I just want you to stay in the backyard, but just go make decisions, enjoy your life, right? So here's the point, is the commands of God are the backyard. And God is saying, make some decisions in your life. Don't freak out about what those decisions are, but follow me, obey me, demonstrate my character in whatever life circumstances that you're living in. That is the primary calling of your life. Okay. A little breath. That's the principle. Okay. So all of that was primarily from verse 17 and then some clarifiers. So now... Let's unpack how Paul applies that principle specifically to singleness and marriage. And with that principle, he actually is going to give some life advice. And he uses not primarily moral categories, but wisdom categories. He's going to give some life advice on how to live as you try to demonstrate the character of God by obeying him and living a called life. 
So let's look at verses 25 through 28. Now concerning the betrothed, okay, so betrothed, he's talking to people who were engaged. So at this point, it was kind of arranged marriages, and the Corinthians were asking Paul, should I move forward with this marriage or not? So he's talking to engaged people who are wondering if they should stay engaged or get married or stay single, okay? Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Okay, that can be a little bit confusing for people because he says, I have no command from the Lord, but it's in the Bible, which we believe to be the, the word of God, right? And so it can, can be confusing on like, is this scripture like the rest of scripture is? Does this carry authority like the rest of scripture does? Um, I'm, I'm quite confident that what he's saying here, and, and most commentators agree, um, that what he's saying when he says from the Lord, he's talking specifically about Jesus. So Jesus, when he was on earth, gave a lot of teaching about marriage and divorce. A lot of it is in, in the Sermon on the Mount. And so Paul is distinguishing and saying, hey, I'm not relaying direct words from Jesus himself, but by the Holy Spirit, he says, by the Lord's mercy, he is trustworthy. So he is still inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying still carries that weight. So now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, so they were being persecuted, so what he's saying is, is culturally grounded, but remember, we said there was a timeless principle involved, so it still applies to us. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So I think an important summary of what he's saying is verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So if you are married in this room, this is the advice of Paul and in, of God through Paul to you is honor Jesus by staying committed to your spouse. Honor Jesus by staying committed to your spouse. God loves unconditional commitment within marriage as a demonstration of his character, and divorce says something about God that isn't true, namely that God, God will never leave you or forsake you. And so in light of that, you reflect that through not leaving or forsaking your spouse. Now, if you are not married, the advice that he gives here, now we have other Bible on marriage and things like that, but the advice that he gives right here is that he recommends not getting married because marriage can distract you from giving your life wholly to the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying that it's wrong to get married. Look at verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. So he's very clear. Paul also wrote Ephesians 5, which is this beautiful depiction of marriage. So he's, he's not anti-marriage. I am married. I clearly don't believe that this is a sin, okay? 
But he's not, he's, again, he's not using moral categories here. He's using a wisdom category. And verse 38 summarizes his point in wisdom. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So he's saying both of these are callings from God. Both of them are good things. But there's a special advantage to singleness. And so single people embrace, and by single I mean you're not married, okay? Single people embrace and live into your singleness. Singleness is not a lesser existence to just kill time until you get married. Singleness is an intentional assignment from God, and it enables you to serve him in some ways that married people are unable to. It can be challenging to be single in the church. Let me just acknowledge that. We can create like weird Christian dating subculture. And we can elevate marriage like it is the only way to experience God's life for you on earth. It's like the holy grail of the Christian life. That is not what Paul is saying here. And sometimes we can think about singleness as like a necessary evil to prepare you for marriage, right? So I'm single right now because I don't really have the character for marriage yet, and so I'm gonna go grow and so that I can get married. I'm gonna become marryable through singleness, which there's some like wisdom, there's some truth in that, but that makes singleness like purgatory, which I just don't feel like is what I'm seeing in this text. Singleness is not one of those boots that you wear when you break your foot. Those like orthopedic boots, you know? So like you, you put it on your foot because it's ultimately gonna make you healthy so you can go back to living your normal life, but you kind of hate your life in the meantime and it ruins your life in the meantime. That is not singleness. Singleness is like a running shoe. It's designed to help you go fast. That's what Paul is saying here. There's an aspect of singleness that helps you be undistracted in your devotion to Jesus and helps you impact the kingdom in unique ways. Now, we can do weird things with this, with applying this text. One of the weird things that we can do is by feeling like uh, because you didn't stay single and you're married, you're living like a lesser existence or you should have stayed single or regretting that or whatever. That's that's not what he's saying. But an equally weird thing that we can do with this text that I think we do more often is sort of go, well, he can't really mean that. When he says stay single as an act of devotion to God, he can't really mean that because that's kind of extreme. And so he must really mean something else. And so I'm just going to flip past 1 Corinthians 7. We'll go to 1 Corinthians 8. That is an odd application of this text. I think when Paul says, hey, you should really consider being single as an act of devotion to God, I think he means, hey, you should really consider being single as an act of devotion to God. And so here's the application for some of you in this room. If you are single, embrace that as an opportunity to live for Christ in a unique way for this period in your life and maybe for the rest of your life. Is that for everyone? Of course not. But is it potentially for some of you Absolutely. Like, honestly, consider that. Now, why would we do all this stuff? So here's what I mean. There's, there's things in 1 Corinthians 7 
that just seem odd culturally. In particular, if you're in here and you're not a Christian, this stuff about staying single as an act of devotion to God, that seems kind of nuts. Like, why would we do this? Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. So we'll stop there for now. I say this for your own benefit. I want you to let that sink in. God is not giving you something that isn't ultimately good and beautiful. Did you know that God is for you, not against you? Do you you know that? Do you know how to believe that and live into that? Do you know that God is kind? Luke 11 talks about how a father, when his child asks him for a fish and an egg, so asks him for lunch, doesn't give him a scorpion because he's the kid's dad. He's going to give the kid good gifts. Like, I gave my kids good gifts for Christmas. I didn't give them stuff they would hate. I give them stuff they like because I'm their dad. God is a far better dad than I am, and he's far better at giving good gifts than I am. And so when he asks you for something, he's also offering you something. He's giving you a good gift. And this is the ultimate gift that he's trying to draw you towards. It's the end of verse 35. To promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Please don't miss this. In eight words, God is telling you what your entire life is about. Your whole life is about this. To secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Devoted, the the root word there is vote, which is derived from the Latin word. It means to vow or to dedicate. So in context, the thing being vowed is the entire self. Your time, your emotions, your loves, your passions, All of who you are, undistracted, undivided, given to Jesus Christ. That is the life that God says is for your benefit. And the ultimate pursuit of happiness is this. Concentrated and whole dedication of all that you are to God. That is the good life, the full life. The Lord Jesus Christ, maker of heaven and earth, through this text, is calling you to absolute and total surrender to his will in utterly every facet of your life. Holistic, audacious devotion to God, only done through his power. Of course you can't do that in your own strength, done through him. Thomas Kelly wrote this in A Testament of Devotion. I just read this book over Christmas, I love it. Double-mindedness in this matter, this matter being devotion to Christ, is wholly destructive of the spiritual life. Listen, totalitarian are the claims of Christ. No vestige of, res- of reservation of our rights can remain. No average goodness will do, no measuring our lives by our fellow, but only a relentless, inexorable, divine standard. No relative suffice, only absolute satisfy the soul committed to holy obedience. Absolute honesty, absolute gentleness, absolute self-control, unwearied patience and thoughtfulness in the midst of the friction of home and office, school and shop. And he ends with talking about devotion to Christ 
by saying his aim is that he wants to live a God-intoxicated life. I love that. It's maybe a little, like, irreverent, but I think it's a cool, like, I want to be drunk with God. Like, I, th- I think that's an incredible goal. That is the great adventure of your life. It's not to manipulate your circumstances perfectly to produce a life that you think will make you happy. The great adventure of your life is the process and the pursuit of absolute, unflinching devotion to Jesus, empowered by him. And that is what Paul is saying is for your benefit, for your good. That's the good life. And that's the only thing that will allow you to embrace the infuriating job like it has purpose, to pursue your spouse in a dull marriage, to reinvigorate it, to embrace singleness as a worship offering to God of your time and your energy. Because your, your pursuit of happiness is in holistic devotion to Jesus Christ, not in creating your preferential life. The good life, the pursuit of happiness, is the pursuit of God. But God first is pursuing you. It's the only way you can pursue God is knowing that. Look at verse 24. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. See what he's saying? Whatever is happening in your life, whatever conditions, whatever circumstances, whether perceived as good or as adverse to your flourishing, whatever those circumstances are, God is there. And you can find him in those circumstances. You don't need to change them to find God. God is there. And he says to remain in God there. Remain means to stay, to rest, to abide. To just sit in the goodness of who God is. You don't need more than what you have in God. And you have him. If you are in Christ, you have him, regardless of what's happening. And so remain in him. And God will very likely ask you for a lot of things that you don't want to let go of. Maybe your pursuit of a relationship, maybe your pursuit of a different relationship, maybe a pursuit of some form of cultural standing or something that you've wanted. He very likely will ask you to let go of that thing. But he's not taking from you. The only reason he wants you to let go is because he wants to give you everything in return. He wants you to open up your hand so that you can receive everything in it. And the everything is him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I confess that I so often don't remember that and don't live like that. But I'm getting just a little more, a few more tastes of how good you are. And I just want more, God. And I want us to be a church that just wants more of you. Compel us by the idea of holistic devotion to you. Would that not feel like a burden? Would it feel like an invitation? And empower us to do what we can't do on our own. 
God, you are good and we want to remain in you. And for the people that have incredibly difficult circumstances right now, that this message feels hard. Like how could you be asking them to just stay where they are? Give them a confidence in your love and a sense that you are with them in that very circumstance and that they can remain. Even when we don't understand, God, we look to you. Help us believe. Help us pursue you above anything else. Help us offer our lives as a living sacrifice to you, our, our marriages, our singleness, our money, jobs, our circumstances. Let us go and live as called people, called to where 